Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, this passage is so rich with powerful words of Jesus that we really pray that you will help us to um, not only understand what it's saying, but to grasp its full impact and the implications for our own life. And we pray for each and everybody here that all of us will truly be in the kingdom of God, both now and forevermore. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to ask you a question just quickly, and I want you to think about it. What does it mean uh, to be a Singaporean? What does it mean to be a Singaporean? Now, obviously, I'm not, I'm not here to develop a white paper on uh, population, but what does it mean to be a Singaporean? Because uh, I've been thinking, well, I've been applying to be a Singaporean, and, uh, and one of the things you learn is it's not just about uh, having a red passport, but it's about certain norms and values and responsibilities and behaviours that you have to hold before really you are a Singaporean. And I think that uh, basically what they say, if you are unable to hold to these values, uh, to these norms of behaviours, to these responsibilities, then you're not really a Singaporean. And Singapore doesn't really want you. And uh, in the same way, I suppose, as we look at today's passage in chapter 17, it's a bit of the same idea, isn't it? What does it mean to be a citizen in the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And I think Jesus says, as we look through chapter 17, the same thing, that it's not just about coming to church on a Sunday or singing songs or going to Bible study, but it's about holding on to certain values, it's about certain norms of behaviour, certain responsibilities that we have. And as we go through, Jesus says very clearly that if you do not have these norms, these values, and these uh, responsibilities that you take seriously, then really, you're not really part of the kingdom of God, and you're not a disciple of Jesus. So Jesus begins very uh, quickly as we uh, look at chapter 17, verse 1, and he says to his disciples, notice this, to his disciples, to people like yourself and myself, and he says to them, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. So what he's saying is that things that cause us to sin will always be among us. It's like the air we breathe. It is the environment that we live in. We will always be tempted to sin. There will always be temptations around us. Therefore, we would expect that the very next words that come out of Jesus' mouth would be something like, Therefore, do not be tempted. Therefore, do not sin. Or watch out and do not sin, isn't it? But what does Jesus say instead? He says, But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourself. Now notice he doesn't say, Watch out for the croupier at Marina Bay Sands so that he doesn't stumble you into gambling. He doesn't say, watch out for the pimp in Gay Lang so that he doesn't tempt you into sexual morality. He doesn't say, watch out for your non-Christian friend or colleague who's trying to seduce or flirt with you. What does he say in verse 3? He says, watch yourself. He says, watch out for yourself that you do not cause other people to sin, that you yourself do not stumble or lead other people into sin. And that's so important for us to hear, isn't it? Because we have the possibility within a community of believers to stumble other people and to lead them into sin. And Jesus goes on to say that it would be better for us to have a, a millstone tied around our neck and thrown off into the sea than to stumble a fellow Christian or brother. Now, why does he say that? Uh, now, what, what is a millstone? Well, okay, here, I'm back with my laser pointer and the thing. So, this is a mill, okay? Uh, apparently, in those days, 
I don't know how they make bread now, but they would grind the bread using this very, very heavy stone to, to sorry, not grind the bread, grind the wheat, the flour, right, into flour, right? And they would grind it up so that the, the wheat would become uh, very fine and then they could make bread or wholemeal with it or whatever they do with it. I'm not very good uh, at uh, food. So obviously you can imagine that this stone has to be a very heavy stone in order to grind the, 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 the wheat, right? So Jesus says, you know, it's better to take this and tie it around your neck and throw yourself off Bedok Jetty than to cause other Christians, your brothers and sisters, to sin. Why does Jesus say that? Because it is better to die a horrible death than to be judged by God and to face God's condemnation and wrath for stumbling other people. That is how serious God takes stumbling other people into sin. So therefore, it says there in verse 3, watch yourself, right? Because it's such a serious thing to stumble other people into sin or to lead them into sin. So as we consider this passage already for ourselves, do you in any way stumble other brothers and sisters into sin? Do you, are, you the, the, are you the means by which sin comes into other people's lives, other Christians' lives? Now unfortunately, I've, I've, these are all true stories. I know of many Christians who stumble other people into sin. Uh, when I was in Australia, I heard of how there was an Australian youth, Christian youth camp and uh, someone brought alcohol into this uh, youth camp and got some of the youth drunk. Uh, maybe you, you don't do something so uh, dr- dramatic as that, but or do you encourage other people to ungodly living in some way? In the language that you encourage other people to use or the sexual innuendo or the jokes that you tell? Uh, maybe you're someone who uh, encourages other people in, 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 into sin in different ways. So, I mean, I don't want to pick on the ladies, but you know, for, if you're a lady, if you come to church, do you dress in a very sexy way? Because uh, a Christian brother once told a Christian sister, when you're dressed to kill, you kill me. All right? And it's true, isn't it? Because when, when a woman dresses in a very sexy way, they're actually leading the guys, the Christian guys, to sin with their eyes and their hearts and their minds. So is that you? Or maybe you're, you're a, a Christian brother and sister who gives bad and ungodly advice to, to each other. You know, I remember hearing from a pastor who was sharing with me how disappointed they were because when they, they advise people at their church, the, the, the people they advise then go to other people within the church who say, oh, don't listen to the pastor. Yeah, career is more important than Christian things. You know, God doesn't expect you to be godly all the time. God doesn't mind if you cut a few corners. Are you someone like that? Are you encouraging people to live an ungodly way? Or maybe you're someone who spreads false teaching and undermines people's faith. So my own father tells me in the church that he is in, uh, which will remain nameless, uh, and I've met some of these people because they come to my house in Bible study, they will come with all sorts of strange and wonderful ideas which come from that really reliable source called the internet, which completely undermines people's faith, even my own father, father's faith. Are you someone like that? Because Jesus says that you are stumbling the little ones. You are leading other people to sin. And if that's you, you need to watch yourself. Because, like it says in the passage, right? Better that you do this to yourself than to stumble other Christians. Either into, by false teaching, by false living, by giving them bad advice so that they will 
go and do the wrong thing. So you do, this is not the norm or the values of people who live in the kingdom of God. They do not stumble other people. They do not lead other people into sin. Jesus then goes on in verse 3b, the next part of verse 3. If your brother and sister sins against you, rebuke them and they, re- they repent. Forgive them. Now I want you to pay attention to this verse very carefully because the words here, rebuke them, forgive them, in the original language and as we can see even in this passage, in the English, they are direct commands and instructions by Jesus. They are not suggestions. He doesn't say, if your brother sins, uh, it would be a good idea to rebuke them. Right? Uh, maybe you should consider forgiving them. No, these are direct instructions. These are commands. And it's, the idea is basically, if your brother and sister sins against you, you must rebuke them. If they repent, you must forgive them. Now, this comes as a shock to us, isn't it? Especially the, the rebuke part. Because we think that Christians... It's all about love, right? Love your neighbor, love everybody at church. And the idea of rebuking people doesn't come very naturally to us. You know, rebuking people, judging people, well, that's what the Pharisees do. But, you know, as Christians, we don't do that sort of stuff, right? And uh, I've come across Christians who say, you know, I don't really want to rebuke my brother and sister because, you know, I might lose a friendship or they might leave the church, even worse. So what happens uh, when we fail to listen to Jesus and we fail to rebuke people who are sinning? Well, we become like the, the, the Omicron or Omi, whatever thing in my WhatsApp. You know, the monkeys, where they see no evil and hear no evil. Well, that's what becomes of a lot of Christians, isn't it? They, they, they just see no evil, hear no evil, and they just let sin persist in church and among their fellowship. But Jesus says that's not acceptable. It says, if your brother and sister sins against you, you must rebuke them. Now, why do we come to church? What's the point of coming to church? Do we just come to church to study the Bible? To sing a few songs? To come to church to make friends? We, if we do that, then we're sadly mistaken, isn't it? Because we come to church to actually help one another grow in godliness. We help one another, as we come together in fellowship, to live in godliness, holiness, and righteousness. And that's why we need to rebuke one another. So I was told uh, by uh, Joshua Ng, this guy, the pastor in Australia, of this elder in a church in Australia who was acting in a very uh, ungodly manner. He was abusive, he was, ang- you know, he was angry, he, had, he showed favoritism. But yet in this church, no one rebuked him. Why? Because he was a very rich man. He was a very powerful man and he gave a lot of money to that church. And as a result, many people left that church. Because no one re- rebuked this man. Uh, brothers and sisters were stumbled and they left the fellowship of this church. A friend of mine told me in Singapore of how his flatmate had borrowed his computer and uh, when he had returned it, he accidentally stumbled across uh, a lot of uh, pornographic sites that this, uh, his flatmate had gone to. And his flatmate was a Bible study leader. So he confronted his flatmate but his flatmate, instead of repenting, scolded my friend and told him that it was none of his business. So this friend of mine brought up the matter with the pastor of his church. And what did the pastor do? Well, my friend waited one month, two months, three months, and the pastor did nothing. And as a result, my friend was badly stumbled and he left the church. You see, Jesus says that where there is clear sin, unrepentant sin, we must confront it, we must rebuke. 
Because when we fail to do so, we do not actually help one another grow in godliness, but rather we destroy God's church. We destroy God's people. Mark Ashton, uh, someone emailed me and told me, said that marriage is not about happiness, it is for holiness. Right? Marriage is not for happiness, it is for holiness. And in the same way, church is not for our happiness, church is for our holiness. It is to help us to come together to grow in godliness. Now we must be careful because I don't think Jesus means for us to become, uh, all become uh, private investigators, right? We're not going to have the BTPC Cash Cheating Spouse Agency, right? Okay? We're not here to dig up dirt on one another and neither are we here to be auxiliary policemen to police one another's lives, right? We're not supposed to rebuke sin like the Pharisees and look down on people. But the idea is to love other people and rebuke them so that they will grow in godliness. And that's why Jesus pairs up the idea of rebuking with the idea of forgiveness. Because if we do not forgive after people repent, then there is no genuine desire to want to restore relationship and help them grow. The difficult thing comes in verse 4. Because in verse 4, it says, even if they sin against you seven times in a day, right? seven times come back to you saying, I repent. You must forgive them. Now, it's kind of shocking, right? I used to read this passage say, how ridiculous, right? So, you know, someone slaps you. Oh, oh I'm so sorry, so sorry. Okay, okay I forgive you. I slap you again. Oh, so sorry, so sorry, sorry. Okay, you must forgive them, right? Slap me again. And, keep, and you keep forgiving this person seven times a day. How many times that? Yeah, I don't know. Right? But you think of it, I don't think Jesus is talking about this ridiculous situation where the person willfully sins and gives you this fake repentance. Because if you look at this passage clearly, it says, seven times this person comes back to you. You don't force this person. This person willingly wants to come back to repent. Uh, there is a genuine desire on the part of this person to repent. So it's not fake repentance that Jesus is talking about, but genuine repentance. And Jesus says that if people sin, and they genuinely repent, even if they do it again and again, that you, you seek to forgive them. Now, do you genuinely forgive people in your heart when people sin and repent to you? I know for some of us it's hard even when the person sins once, let alone seven times. But that's what the passage says, isn't it? Jesus says, and this doesn't give us a choice, right? You must forgive people if they repent. So do you forgive people in your hearts do you truly forgive them when they sin against you and they repent? Or do you hold a grudge and you hold bitterness in your heart? The apostles in verse 5 said to Jesus, Increase our faith, they said. And in verse 6 he replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Now, uh, what is a mustard seed? Uh, well, if you look up here, a mustard seed is a very small seed. Okay? Uh, think of your McDonald's hamburger bun. You see those sesame seeds? It's about the same size or slightly smaller, right? Okay? And this is a mulberry tree. As you can see, it's quite a big tree. It's got a very deep root system. Obviously, I can't have a photograph of the roots. But uh, you can get the idea, right? So, Jesus is actually saying a very impossible picture. Right? It's a contrast between something which is very small and something which is very big. 
with very deep root systems. And he's saying, look, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, then you can tell this tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea. Now, obviously, that's a ridiculous picture, right? Because you know, how, how can this tree be planted in the sea? It's not, it doesn't work, right? So what Jesus is actually saying, he's trying to say that even if you have small faith, you can do the impossible. Now, I remember I used to misunderstand this passage and, I, and I've seen this passage preached before and I think they've mispreached it. Because Jesus is not saying that you can do the impossible in every situation. No, He's not saying, look, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you'll be healed of your cancer. He's not saying if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can be a billionaire like Bill Gates. Right? He's not saying if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can convert the whole of China on your own. No, he's not saying that, isn't it? The context, come back to the context. Why did the apostles ask Jesus to increase their faith? They asked Jesus to increase their faith because they knew how hard it would be to forgive seven times a day. That's why they were crying out to have more faith to forgive seven times a day. But Jesus says that you don't need more faith as long as you have faith. It's not the quantity of faith that counts. It is the presence of faith that counts. If you have faith in Jesus, you will forgive you will obey and the Holy Spirit will work in your hearts. It's not about more and more faith so you can do more and more forgiveness. If you have faith in Jesus, you will obey Jesus and you will forgive. Jesus goes on and it's the same theme in verse 7. And he says, Suppose one of you has a servant plowing and looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Won't you rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now this is a very um, straightforward parable and I think that uh, as Singaporeans we can probably understand it perfectly easily. It's like, you know, you go home, for those of you who have maids, or lucky enough to have maids, or know people with maids, you go home and uh, your maid is doing something, or I don't know, mopping the floor, your, your domestic servant, your helper is mopping the floor, cleaning the windows, looking after the baby, or whatever, and then, they, when, when they see you come home, what do they do? Uh, do they come and say, okay, let's, let me join you, so we can have dinner together. No, your domestic helper won't do that, right? I mean, once they cook the food, they serve the food and, and, and you eat, and then the domestic helper will eat afterwards, isn't it? And neither will you say to your domestic helper, wow, you know, you cook dinner tonight. That's really great, you know? <laughs> it's so unexpected. I never expected you to cook dinner for me tonight. No, isn't it? Because all these things are, are expected. That's what you expect from your domestic helper. That's what you, you expect from your maid. That they'll be other, doing other, other activities, washing, cleaning, and then... When you come home, they would have cooked the food, you would have sit down first, you would eat the food, and then they would eat later, right? So they don't expect, you don't expect the domestic helper to come and join you for dinner, and neither do you expect for your domestic helper to be, you know, oh, now that I can cook dinner for you, oh, you know, can I have a special reward? No, right, because that's what is expected. Now, think of it in this way, Jesus says, you are the same way. I mean, you're not really domestic helpers to Jesus, but you are, you are, you are, God sees you in the same way. If you are in the kingdom of God, 
if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you follow Jesus, then when you serve Jesus, it is not something extra that is expected of you. It's not that, wow, God is really impressed with you, you know, you, you're doing this extra thing. It is part of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And the application is, Jesus is saying, look, when he's asking his disciples, when he's asking you and I not to stumble other people or lead them into sin, is he asking for something extra in your life? Is he saying, wow, it's really, you're a super duper Christian? No. He's saying this is expected. This is the norm of what it means to be a Christian, that you do not stumble other people. It is part of your service in the kingdom. When Jesus says you must rebuke other people in love, this is not something extra in the Christian life. It is part of your Christian life. When Jesus asks you to forgive when people repent, this is not something extra in the Christian life. This is what, this is, what is the norm of the Christian life. Now, when we think of service, we know we think of people playing the piano, people reading the Bible, people ushering at the back. But Jesus says, this sort of service is required of every single disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, the service that is demanded here is for all and is not an optional extra. Everybody who sits in this room today and calls themselves a Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, must not stumble each other into sin. They must rebuke one another if they see sin and they must forgive when there is repentance. This is not extra. This is part of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. So the first thing that we learn in this section is about service in the kingdom of God. Then I think the next section is all about faith in the kingdom of God because faith obviously is, is what keeps us in the kingdom of God. So in chapter 11, sorry, chapter 17, verse 11, uh, we read this story of a miracle of Jesus. And, uh, you know, he goes to a village and there are ten men with leprosy who are calling out to him and Jesus heals them. Now, when you look at this miracle from verse 11 to verse 14, it's not a very remarkable miracle. I mean, it's just Jesus doing his normal, you know, healing thing. It's, it's, it's probably fairly straightforward, right? Just another day in the office for Jesus. I mean, we've seen him do, do even greater miracles than this. So why is this healing so important? Why does Luke record this healing for us? Why is it even here? Well, I think it's here because the focus is not so much on Jesus, but the focus is on the leper who came back, isn't it? Okay? Because if you notice, we're not really that interested. I mean, in terms of, okay, Jesus healed, yep, fine, but, but what does it mean? And I think what we're supposed to see from it is the leper who came back. So what do we see about the leper who came back? Well, in verse 15, one of them, when he saw he was healed, he came back and praised God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now what is it that we notice about this person? Well, first of all, he's the only person who came back to Jesus. He's the only person, there were nine, and like George said, 10%, only one, one person came back. And what does he do? We notice that he praises God 
he praises God and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. Now what is the meaning of this, that he praised God and he threw himself at Jesus' feet? Well, what it means is, first of all, he recognizes that God is working through Jesus. Right? That's why he's praising God. He doesn't say, praise Jesus. He says, praise God. Because God is working through Jesus. But he throws himself at Jesus' feet. Uh, any, anybody throw, yourself, anybody, uh, throw themselves at anybody's feet recently? No, right? Anybody throw... Oh, you did, okay. Anybody, anybody uh, throw themselves at your feet recently? No, right? Usually when you throw yourself at someone's feet, uh, usually you are like worshipping them or you know, you're, you're really giving them authority, right? And honour, respect. So what's happening here is this man is praising God because he recognises God is working through Jesus, but he's also recognising the power and the authority of Jesus. He's like worshipping Jesus in a way, as a, as a king. Now, we don't know exactly what he's thinking, but Jesus' questions tell us what he's thinking and what's in his heart. And Jesus says, we're not all ten cleansed. And obviously the answer is yes, they were all cleansed and healed and be able to go back to society because they had leprosy. Where are the other nine? Obviously they're not here, right? Has no one returned to give praise to, uh, to God except for this foreigner? And obviously the answer is yes, no one else has come back except this foreigner. Now, it's really shocking, right? In a sense, when you read this, I mean, ten people, only one came, only one came back. Where are the other nine? Maybe the Singaporeans. Okay, don't worry about that. Okay? No, because you know Singaporeans don't thank you very much, right? Okay? But, what, what's happening here? Okay, when we read this, we often think, oh, what makes this man special is because he's a thankful man. Okay? This man is a thankful man and the other nine people are not thankful, right? They're ungrateful people. But is that the point that Jesus is trying to make here? I don't think that's the point, right? Jesus is not trying to say, be like this Samaritan because he was a really thankful man. But instead, what does Jesus commend him for in verse 19? He says, Rise and go. Your thankfulness has made you well. No, it doesn't say that, right? He says, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. What makes this man different from the other nine lepers is his faith in Jesus. That's what makes him different. Now, why is this man's faith different from the other nine lepers? Well, because his faith has made him well. Now, look at that verse very carefully. Your faith has made you well. Literally, that verse is saying, if you want to translate it literally, it means your faith has saved you. Or literally, the words in the original language is, your faith saved you. And what it means is, Jesus is not saying that, oh, the very obvious thing is, oh, you're healed of leprosy, so go home because you're already healed. He's saying that your faith, which is different from the nine other lepers, has actually given you something more. Has actually given you salvation. Actually given you salvation into the kingdom of God. See, earlier on in chapter 16, verse 16, right, if you look up here, Jesus has said, um, the law and the prophets were proclaimed unto John, and since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And everyone is forcing his way into the kingdom of God. Now here we see a man, a leper, a Samaritan leper, that, who is doing that. He is forcing his way into the kingdom of God. He is pushing his way into the kingdom of God. 
unlike the other Jewish, non-Jewish lepers who are not. Because he has faith in Jesus, which is different from the other nine lepers. See, the other nine lepers, they receive what is theologically called the general grace of God. See, God has a general grace. You know, general grace is where, you know, you're sick, you get better, you have a problem, God solves it. This is the general grace of God. But this Samaritan received saving grace. By the grace of God, he was saved. He saved from his sins, he saved to enter into the kingdom of God. He is no longer facing God's wrath and judgment. So what faith do you have? Do you have the faith of the nine Jewish lepers? See, many people come to church and they say they have faith in Jesus, but what sort of faith do they have? They only have faith of the nine Jewish lepers. They come to church, they have faith in Jesus to maybe uh, make life better for them, to make life happier for them, to have healing perhaps. But that's all they expect of God and that's what those nine Jewish lepers wanted of Jesus and that's why they didn't come back. I remember John Piper said, if your daughter dies or your son dies, will you still be a Christian? If your daughter dies or your son dies, will you still be a Christian? And the answer must be yes, isn't it? Because God didn't promise that you will outlive your children. God promises that in Jesus you will rise from the dead, you will have eternal life and you will live in heaven. See, that's what this Samaritan leper could see, is that Jesus was offering more than just healing in this world. So do you have the faith of the Samaritan that to see Jesus for who he is and what he has come to do? He has come to bring you into the kingdom of God and offer you full salvation. Because that is the faith of those who would be in the kingdom of God. See, these nine Jewish lepers, they are not in the kingdom of God. Only the one Samaritan leper is. Because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Is that the faith that you have for saving the saving grace of God? So the qualities of the disciples, those in the kingdom of God, are obedient service and a faith in Jesus which looks to ultimate salvation, isn't it? Not just the things of this world things that are, are, are much lower down in terms of what Jesus is actually bringing. But in the next section, in verse 20 onwards, we see the last quality of those who are in the kingdom of God. So in verse 20, it says, Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now the Pharisees were asking Jesus, when is the kingdom of God coming into this world? And Jesus basically says, look, uh, there's no point looking for it, and there's no point saying, here it is, and there it is, because, and this is where the end of verse 21 is very important, the kingdom of God is in your midst, or in the earlier version of the NIV, it is within you. Or in other translations, it is among you. Jesus is saying, look, why are you looking for the kingdom of God when the kingdom of God is already here? See, the Pharisees had the same problem as the nine Jewish lepers. 
they couldn't see that the king had already come and the king had already brought the kingdom of God into the world. And that's why they were asking, hey Jesus, where is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God? Jesus said, the kingdom of God is already here. Is it among you? Is it within you? It is, it is in your midst. Why are you looking for the kingdom of God? But then Jesus then goes on to <coughs> address his disciples again in verse 22 and teach them a lesson of how they need to wait uh, for the consummation of the kingdom of God. So in verse 22, he said to his disciples, The time is coming where you long to see one of the days of man, but you will not see it. Now, um, obviously, when we read this, if we're not well versed in uh, the Old Testament, we're not sure what is Jesus talking about. What is one of the days of the Son of Man? Well, the days of the Son of Man literally are when Jesus, or this person, or this person called the Son of Man, will come down from heaven and he will bring the consummation or the fulfillment of the kingdom of God into this earth. Right? He will bring heaven and the powers of heaven, all authority and rule into this earth. So look at me at Daniel chapter 7. Oh, it's up here already, good. Okay. So Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus is actually referring to Daniel chapter 7 when he says, the time is coming where you long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. That means the time when the Son of Man will come into this earth and bring God's kingdom in one last final time in its fullness, in its consummation, and its fulfillment. So what had happened was, and this is where we need to pay attention, right? Jesus brings in the kingdom of God when he comes into the world. But the kingdom of God will not reach its fulfillment and consummation until Jesus comes again like the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Okay, so in between, there is a period of time where people like ourselves are disciples. We are waiting for the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, even though it's already come in. Okay, so Jesus comes, fulfillment of God, uh, sorry, the kingdom of God has come, but Jesus has to come again before the kingdom of, of God is fulfilled and consummated. Okay, so there's a period of time which we are living in right now, in between the coming of the kingdom of God and the consummation of the kingdom of God. And during that time, Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, look, you have to be very careful how you live during this time because you need to wait patiently for me to come again. You need to, you need to watch out for some uh, difficulties and dangers and risk which will come against you during this time. So what's the first risk? In verse 23, he said, People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So, what he's saying is, in this in-between time between Jesus coming and Jesus coming again, there will be people who will be 
saying that, oh, I've seen Jesus, I've seen the Messiah, we should go and do this, we should go and find out this, we should, we should do all these things. But Jesus says, look, don't run after these people, don't waste your energy running after these people. Okay, because as a Christian, we know that when Jesus returns, we don't have to look for him, it will be as clear as a ball of lightning in the sky. You see, when there's lightning in the sky, you can't miss it. It stretches from one end to the other. It's, it's just visible, right? So imagine, I mean, today we have high-rise buildings, so you know, it's not so clear. But imagine in those days, they had no high-rise buildings. When there was a storm, when there was a lightning, everybody could see the lightning. So Jesus says, look, when we live in the in-between time between the coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, don't go running trying to find out about where and who and what's going to happen. Now, I'm sure... Many of you have uh, read the newspaper before, like, you know, there are all these people who say, oh, you know, uh, the end of the world is going to happen in uh, December 2012, based on the Mayan calendar or something, right? And then somebody says, oh, the end of the world is going to happen some other time. You should sell everything you have. Well, Jesus says, don't go run after these people. Uh, it always amazes me why some Christians spend y- y- years uh, studying the book of Revelation. I-, I know of these Christians who spend three years of their life studying the book of Revelation and nothing else. And they only do that because they want to find out about you know, when Jesus is going to come and what's going to happen. But Jesus says, look, don't devote your energy into these things. Don't run after these things. But, but just wait. Because when I come, it will be clear. It will be apparent to all. That's the first temptation, right? Running after those who want to point to where it is. The second risk comes in verse 26 to 30. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People will be eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Now, Jesus refers back to two historical events of God's wrath and judgment. The flood in Noah's time and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah during Lot's time. And he said both, of, both times things were going on as normal, right? And he points out to uh, celebration. People are eating and drinking, marrying and being given over to marriage. I mean, those are things that people do when they celebrate, right? Eat, drink and be merry. Right? Get married. But also, there's pictures of business. Right? People are buying and selling, planting and building. And he's saying, look, when judgment came, these people were unprepared. And because they were unprepared, they were destroyed, isn't it? That's why it says there in verse 27 and verse 29. Right? The, the, the flood came and destroyed them all. Sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. These people were unprepared for judgment. And the lesson for us as disciples are, we must always be prepared for the return of Jesus. We must not be tempted to go back to the life of the world where we just eat, drink and be merry and do business and everything and forget about God. Because if not, we will be destroyed. So imagine... I'm not a prophet. Imagine if Jesus came tonight. Right tonight, 8 o'clock. 
would you be prepared to meet him? Right? Would you be ready for him? Or, or would your mind and your life be filled with, uh, okay, Champions League, Manchester United, Real Madrid this Tuesday. Uh, okay, oh, I've got to, got to sign up for the MBA course. Got to buy my COE for the car. You know, so would you be prepared for Jesus coming or is your life focused in this world? Because that's what Jesus is saying, isn't it? He's saying, look, the kingdom of God is going to come. All these people are unprepared in Noah's time. In Lord's time, they're all unprepared. They're all doing these things. And then when it came, it was too late. So if Jesus came tonight, would you be prepared? Where is the focus in your life? Are you focused on the kingdom of God coming? Or are you focused in this world? And that's exactly what verse 31 onwards is saying, isn't it? On that day, no one who is on the housetop with his possessions uh, should go with his possession aside, should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything and remember Lot's wife. Right? Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. Now, those are three pictures. Uh, I don't think they're literal pictures uh, on that day where you need to go down and get something, you know, like maybe, you know, you have your emergency pack or something downstairs or you want to go back to something. I don't think that's the point of what Jesus is trying to say. The key point here is to remember Lot's wife. And in Lot's time, if you go back, right? Oh, I didn't highlight the other ones. The angel said very specifically, flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plane, right? Don't stop, just keep going. But Lot's wife, what happened? She looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So Lot's wife is like a proverbial figure for us of looking back, the dangers of looking back. Right? Because it's so easy, isn't it? Uh, for us to look back. I feel it myself. As a Christian, do you ever look back to your non-Christian life and say, oh, you know, ah, I remember the time when I wasn't a Christian. Wouldn't it be good, all those things I could have done, but I can't do anymore. Do you ever look back at what your non-Christian friends are doing and, uh, and think, oh, you know, if I wasn't a Christian, I could do those things too. And wouldn't it be really enjoyable? Well, isn't that what this passage is warning us about? When Jesus comes, do we look back at the things that we are leaving instead of looking forward to the kingdom of God? Is that what you do in your life? Do you look back at this world and think, oh, you know, the things of this world, actually, they're pretty good. I don't really want to look forward to the kingdom of God. Well, then, you're making a big mistake, isn't it? Because you're like Lot's wife, you're your heart is not in the future, in the kingdom of God. Your heart is in this world, in this life. And if you have the attitude of not waiting patiently and properly for the kingdom of God's consummation, then you will be outside the kingdom of God, isn't it? Because your heart is here, your focus is in this world, you are not prepared, you're not thinking about Jesus, you're not living for Jesus then you have no place in the kingdom of God. So like I said in the beginning, being a citizen in the kingdom of God, being a disciple of Jesus, is not about coming to church on Sunday. It's about actually focusing on what's really important. So are you serving in the kingdom of God like Jesus wants you to? Are you not stumbling other people? Are you rebuking other people to build them up? Are you forgiving them? 
Do you have faith in Jesus Christ alone for your ultimate salvation? Or do you just turn to Jesus for pleasures and blessings and favour in this world? Are you patiently waiting for the coming kingdom of God? Or are you stuck in this world where your heart, your mind, your priorities, your dreams are all about this world but not about preparing and waiting for the kingdom of God? Because if we fail to do these things, then Jesus is very clear, isn't it? Jesus warns us that the cost is really great. You will spend the rest of eternity regretting and weeping and gnashing our teeth. And I pray that for everyone here, we will never be outside the kingdom of God. But we will always be in the kingdom of God as we are today and also for the rest of eternity when Jesus comes again. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may take Jesus' words seriously, that this age will pass and another age will come, that even though Jesus has brought in the kingdom of God when he came to this earth, but yet it has not reached its final fulfillment and it will not do so until Jesus comes like the Son of Man. So we pray that during this time, we will serve obediently before you. We will not stumble others. We will rebuke to build others up. We will forgive them from the bottom of our hearts. That we will have faith in Jesus for our ultimate salvation. And that we will truly wait patiently for the kingdom of God to come. That we will not be drawn away by the things of this world. And to find our home here. And to look longingly and wistfully at the things of this world. But instead to always be focused on the kingdom of God, our true home in heaven. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.